My guest on today's program is Boston-based health and wellness writer and former technology reporter, Rebecca Strong. Rebecca is a contributor to Insider, Bustle, Healthline, Ask Men and Health Magazine. Ms. Strong is also the creator of a very important Substack page called Down the Rabbit Hole, which you can find at rebeccastrong.substack.com. That's R-E-B-E-C-C-A. Here are a few things that people are saying about Rebecca's work. No hyperbole, no conspiracy theories, just plain facts. A welcome new voice of clarity in a cacophony of propaganda. A brilliant reminder of what investigative journalism is supposed to look like. And I hope more journalists join Rebecca in the Herculean effort required to oppose the villains in charge of so many crimes against humanity one that I certainly echo. Rebecca, thanks a lot for coming on the program. Thanks for having me. I want to start by reading a few lines from the About section of your Substack page because I think that it will give listeners a good idea of what kind of journalism you're doing here Uh, and then we can talk about that three-part series you've published called The Monopoly on Your Mind. On that about section, it says, I imagine you came to Substack because you're frustrated with how difficult it's become to separate fact from corporate spun fiction. You're tired of absurdity, absurdly duplicative, biased, sensationalist, propagandist content you're used to getting on corporate news sites and channels. I'm glad you found me because I am too. Having been a member of the media machine for a decade now, I know firsthand why and how this industry fails to serve our democracy by keeping citizens informed and holding those in power accountable. You sound pretty fired up there, Rebecca. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I think, um, you know, I mean, I I guess... I guess that statement pretty much speaks for itself, but um, particularly over the past few years, just watching um, the media's coverage of, you know, some, some pretty massive events. Uh, The pandemic is the first one that comes to mind watching, watching that coverage unfold. um, I felt like I sort of needed to take a step back and, you know, it's it's not often as a reporter that I'm reporting on the media, but I felt like it was time to dig into a lot of the problems as I see them. Um, because, you know, when I talk to the average citizen, uh, most people agree that their trust in, in mainstream media mm-hmm. is abysmally low. They just don't really know why it's so bad and how we got here. So that was really the, the goal of this series. So when you mentioned there came to light, particularly during the pandemic, what aspect of that made you sort of realize quite strongly what was going on? I think the big red flag for me was uh, how one-sided the coverage was. You know, I think we rely on the media to present what I, I would hope would be all angles when it when it comes to really complicated issues like war and disease and political you know campaigns like we we expect that um, or I, I believe we deserve to get all possible perspectives on those subjects and 
where the pandemic is concerned, I, we really just weren't seeing that, you know, it was really just all the coverage was, um, starting to look the same. <laughs> mm. And that was, yeah, that was a really big, a big red flag for me. Um, I felt like, you know, who was being a mouthpiece or a voice for, for the other side, you know, for people who are maybe hesitant to get the vaccine or uncertain whether masks are actually effective or, you know, we just weren't really even seeing any mainstream outlets even going anywhere near that, you know? So, um, yeah, that, that kind of, uh, I think raised some, some warning signs for me. And that was kind of when I started digging into, okay, well, like, where is, where does the media get their funding? Um, you know, that, that was what sort of led me down, down the rabbit hole, so to speak for, for the Substack series. Well, let's talk about that. Um, so just to put probably the, the most alarming statement out there first, and then we can kind of, uh, maybe reverse engineer this is that six companies now control 90% of what we read, watch and hear. Um, I think that that is, sadly, that's becoming a bit of a platitude in itself that people are just accept, accepting, right? Um, but it, it's quite serious. So let's go back to how this was able to happen through legislation to begin with. Sure. Um, well, I'm speaking, you know, I'm speaking from the perspective of an American, but um, at least in my surface level research on other countries, it's um, a pretty similar state of affairs in terms of, you know, a small number of companies dominating, um, dominating the news coverage. But um, basically what happened is that there used to be a lot of regulations around media ownership. You know, companies were only allowed to um, own a certain number of uh, newspapers or television stations within um, a certain area. And over the last 40 years, we've seen those regulations become looser and looser, allowing big corporations to just gobble up more and more news stations and outlets. Um, a lot of those, a lot of those changes came during the 80s um, when Congress and the FCC increased a lot of uh, the, the cap on how many stations a single company could own. Um, mm. but where we saw like a dramatic shift was in 96 when Clinton signed the telecommunications act. Um, and yeah, small independent outlets and stations just couldn't survive. Just talk a bit more about that telecommunications act and what it essentially prevented these small companies from being able to do. Um, yeah, so the Telecommunications Act, um, I'm trying to think about the, the best way to explain this. Um, it was like a pretty massive overhaul in, uh, in, in federal communications policy, but um, basically it allowed large companies, um, from what I understand, just to increase the number of um, mergers that they could pursue and, um, acquisitions that they could make. So, um, that's why you see like a big wave of, of, um, of mergers and of 
large companies buying smaller ones over the next like 30 years. Something like 70% of, of Americans didn't even know about these changes. Yeah. Yeah. It wasn't really widely publicized. Um, there was, there was no, there really wasn't any news coverage on it, which is bizarre or maybe not so bizarre. Um, but the fact that, you know, the media kind of failed to shed light on these massive changes that were happening is really worrisome. And then, you know, when polls were later taken of the public, um, about, about the telecommunications act, the vast majority of people agreed that it was, you know, it would have a negative impact on news coverage. Um, but they never had a, a say in it. They never had a chance to vote on it. They didn't even know that it was that it existed <laughs> until it was already passed. They have the control of the flow of information at the same time they're controlling information about the flow of information. <laughs> right, right. So just back to um, what happened after that telecommunications act which is sort of where we're at now and you say today just six conglomerates comcast disney at&t sony fox and paramount formerly known as viacom control that 90 percent that we're talking about um you say to put this into perspective that means about 230 media executives have the power to decide what information 277 million americans are able to access in 2021, the big six banked a total of half a trillion dollars in revenue. That's more than Finland and Ukraine's GDP combined. So it blows my mind when people don't think that they're being manipulated or they're being lied to. Yeah, I mean, the I talked about this a little bit in the piece, but there's this phenomenon that, you know, it's applicable to all industries, but I think especially with the media, and that is the illusion of choice. Um, you know, I've seen these graphs circulate around the internet. You may have seen them too, where it's like, um, it's supposed to be a display of uh, here are the left-leaning outlets, here are the right-leaning outlets, here are the ones you can trust. And <laughs> if you were to take all of those companies and create like a flow chart, it's sort of amusing because mm. so many of them are ultimately the, they're all owned by the same corporation. You know, you feel like you have the ultimate say in where you're getting your information from, but really you don't have that much of a choice at the end of the day. Um, it's all flowing from the same few sources. And these are big business sources, right? These executives are sitting on boards of companies and drug companies and defense companies. You use this term uh, interlockness, right? Uh, all you know, all companies, including media companies, have a board of directors, and um, the board of directors have a lot of power. You know, they're making um, a lot of decisions that are supposed to support the interests of the company's stakeholders. Um, when someone who's on the board of a media company also happens to sit on the board at another company that creates what's called an interlock. So for example, I was like digging through um, the board of directors at various um, legacy newspapers. And I found out that, you know, someone who's on the board at the New York Times also sits on the board for Nike and McDonald's. Um, and 
if you look at there, so there's been a, a decent amount of research on this, analyzing just how common these interlocking directorates are. Um, and there was a 2021 study that showed that publicly traded American newspapers are interlocked by 1,276 connections to 530 different companies. So in other words, some of the board members at these media, at these uh, newspaper companies also sit on the boards of like dozens of advertising companies, technology firms, financial institutions, uh, even government agencies and political entities. Um, and I included some examples of that in, in my piece, but it's, it's pretty eye-opening when you look at it. At the New York Times, people on the board for Johnson & Johnson and uh, Texaco and Ford and, you know, um, I think it's like the definition of a conflict of interest. Um, Absolutely. C CNN sitting on the board of Citigroup, American Express, Fannie Mae, Hilton, PepsiCo. So you can you can see why all these companies these conglomerates are going work together, right? Right, exactly. And, um, you know, one of the sources that I spoke with, a media lecturer, um, he mentioned that, you know, this can be especially problematic uh, with, with specific industries. So the example that he cited was when, when media board members are also on the boards of defense companies, um, obviously that kind of an interlock could potentially lead to more pro-war types of narratives. Um, you know, the kind we saw leading up to the invasion of Iraq or more recently with, you know, Russia and Ukraine. So, um, yes. And obviously interlocks with pharmaceutical companies that, that could potentially create conflicts of interest in coverage of COVID. What we're really saying with I stand with Ukraine is potentially I stand with Lockheed Martin or... <laughs> Right. I think that because I've been covering this sort of stuff for a while in terms of um, global media propaganda from a sort of a philosophical point of view and also from a, a legislative point of view, not, not in America as deeply as you have. I mean, this is a fantastic story and everyone should read this. It's actually a three-part series. Hopefully, Rebecca will be gracious enough to come back on and cover the rest of this whole thing. But I think it backfired on them, right? Right. And I think right. that all of these steps they're trying to take to uh, force things that are not in the fullness of truth on us, it's having a bit of a, a backfiring effect. What, what do you think of that? I would agree. Yeah. Um, I mean, I definitely, I don't think I'm alone in that um, the past few years have been kind of a wake up call for me in terms of um, how I approach getting my news and, um, you know, what, what information I trust. And I, and a lot of the people that I've spoken with, you know, friends, family members, um, a lot of people are developing, I think a healthy sense of skepticism. <laughs> um, you know, I think it's, I think it's a good thing. It's exhausting because it's like, well, how do I know, you know, what I can rely on and where do I get news that, I can trust, but, um, but I, I would say overall, it's a good thing to be a little bit skeptical. It's also a little bit daunting for a lot of people, because if you've trusted the mainstream media your entire life, I don't really have a lot of time for people that 
mock those people because you should be able to trust your government and your media. Totally, totally. So if all of a sudden for you to, um, to accept that they're lying to you about something as significant as COVID-19, it's a massive leap to take. Yeah, I completely agree. And I've had to be really careful in the way that I approach these topics with loved ones, um, especially like I found my mom and people in that generation. It's really hard to accept this idea that you might not be able to trust, you know, what you hear on like she she probably watches CNN every day. <laughs> um, and I had to explain to her, you know, that also the media landscape was very different in her you know, growing up, um, she grew up in the age of like Walter Cronkite, the most trusted man in America, you know, so, um, <laughs> things are a little different now. Not exactly. Uh, Brian Stelter is not exactly the Walter Cronkite <laughs> of CNN. Yeah. So I've had to kind of ease her into, um, to all of this and she'll say to me, you know, well, I don't have time to research who funds every single news outlet that I, you know, that I turn to. And I, I have, sympathy and empathy for her. You know, um, I think a lot of people feel that way. They're like, well, what am I supposed to, how am I supposed to get, you know, stay, stay informed. So. I think that's the big myth is that we have to stay informed. Mm. What do we really need to stay informed for? Um, well, there are some things, right. Mm -hmm. that we need to know. We need to know if there's a snowstorm coming, right. We might like to know what for you, maybe what the, uh, the Celtics are doing right, <laughs> but but they've made it so we need to know what's happening about wars in other countries and in every single detail of what's going on in pol in political life. These are not things that we need to stay informed with, informed about. But such is the nature of the twenty four hour news cycle, which I think is is the key to being the most destructive element of all of this. Mm. There's not that much news. Yeah, no, it's so, it's so true. Um, and I don't even, I don't, we don't have cable, so I don't watch the news on television. I don't really read. I'm, I'm writing so much all day that I don't really have time to read the news, but it's so unavoidable, like just being on social media. I'm just, even if I don't want to be <laughs> up to date on what's happening in the world, it's just thrown at me, you know, through Twitter or wherever. You just got to get suspended. <laughs> yeah, permanently, permanently suspended for wrong think. <laughs> right, right. Permanently suspended for um, violating CBS, Viacom, Fox, Disney, the collective, <laughs> the collective morality of these companies, and that's what that's what really what it comes down to, isn't it? These people are now, these corporations, I should say, are now uh, kind of dictating morality to government. Mm. If you look at all these things that circulate around whether it's black lives matter or pride or any of these things they're coming from amex and coke mm. and then governments are almost subservient to corporations right right yeah that's interesting um i mean i think that's where you know the the lobbying really comes into play um I've done some research on um, big media lobbyists, and they're they're pretty powerful um, in in terms of influencing, you know, government policy. <laughs> so, um, 
Yeah. I mean, they're, they're not quite as, as powerful as big pharma, but they're up there. So. Oh yeah. Big, I mean, we saw just how, how um, powerful big pharma were in the last two years. It's extraordinary. It really, it really is. <laughs> but it's kind of not, it's nothing new, is it? Like you would expect them to flex their muscles harder during a pandemic. Do you mean like, were you talking about big pharma specifically or? Yeah, their grip on this. Yeah. I mean, I would say the only major changes over the past like 20 to 30 years, um, maybe 40 years has been their contributions to like large health organizations, um, like, you know, the who and the CDC and the FDA, um, there Mm. used to be regulations around that, that, that prevented pharmaceutical companies from contributing to those organizations and one by one, you know, loopholes or regulation changes happened, um, that allowed them like, for for example, in the, in the case of the FDA, um, they now are allowed to provide payments to the FDA with, they call them user fees. And it's supposed to facilitate the process of getting their products approved, um, you know, push them, push them through the pipeline, uh, a little quicker. Mm. And in the case of the CDC, like they still can't contribute money directly to the CDC, but they can through the CDC foundation, through the nonprofit. So, you know, they found all these workarounds that now, um, their reach is, is even more powerful than it was, you know, say just not that long ago, like in the seventies or the eighties. So. Yeah. This is just a well-oiled organism at this stage, isn't it? (laughs) Yeah, it really is. Yeah. And even, I mean, to connect the two, because before I did this piece on big media, I had written a piece about big pharma and what, what I found in kind of transitioning from one to the next is that um, they're, they're also like, for example, Bill Gates, um, he's been a really, he's been a huge contributor to media organizations in recent years. Um, he's funneled like millions of dollars into various, yeah, mainstream news outlets. Um, and, and, you know, you're, you see the effects of that. If you analyze the coverage on Bill Gates or the, you know, Bill and Melinda foundation or he's a good guy. (laughs) Yes. Yes. (laughs) He's a very good guy. Um, and, and the, and the coverage of the, the vaccine, you know, there was like a, I think there was like a fact checking, you know, report on, I don't know if it was Reuters or where it was, but, um, it was a fact checking report that was funded by, so he funds the news outlet that wrote the, the fact checking report. And in the fact checking report, they denied that he had any financial interest in the vaccine, which is just flat out false, you know? (laughs) So, um, it's just like, it's so ludicrous when you really examine it. So here's something that's interesting, uh, from your story, Mm. just to get back to kind of the grassroots level on the the people level. So you've said nowadays that, uh, entire cities and towns across the country with no local coverage, according to a 28, a 2018 study, more than 2,000 US counties, which is about 63%, have no daily newspaper, while about 15, uh, 1,449 counties only have one. 
Meanwhile, 171 counties totaling 3.2 million residents have zero newspapers whatsoever. You've you've called these, or they're known as news deserts. Yes. It's hard to imagine being, you know, I've been living in Boston in the Boston area and very urban area um, for so long. Um, You know, I think a lot of these so-called news deserts exist at least in the U.S., like maybe out in the Midwest or in smaller, smaller or less populated um, towns. But um, studies have shown that when when they don't have access to local news, there's like some pretty serious negative consequences. Like, you know, they have um, lower voter turnout. There's uh, fewer candidates running for mayor, there's more government corruption, um, which makes sense when you think about it, because if citizens are armed with the information they need to make sound decisions about who they want leading their community, and all they really have to rely on is like social media, um, corruption is free to run rampant. <laughs> so, And also you're not getting, you're not getting cadet journalists in those small towns that right. would be digging up and asking questions about those, that corruption. Totally. These, these journalists are just going straight to the LA times or whatever. Right. Yes. That's so true. That's interesting about the potential for corruption. Yeah, it is. Um, it is. And, and it, it just goes to show like the importance of local news. I, I never really thought about it. Um, but but there, there is something to be said for that. It's apparently, you know, it, it really has an impact. Where did you start your career? I, I started, um, <laughs> my first writing job was actually for a content marketing agency. So I was really on the other side of things. I was doing a lot of like SEO blogs for companies, um, not reporting at all, just like blogging all day long. And I got so burned out from it. I was writing like 10 to 12 blogs a day. And it was a great exercise, you know, in sort of increasing my volume and my capacity as a writer, but it wasn't very fulfilling at all. And then I got my first reporting job um, around 2014. I was writing for uh, a site called Boston-O, which is owned by the Boston Business Journal. Um, and I was writing about tech and startups, which is a really big, um, there's a really large community, uh, large tech community in Boston. And there's a ton of startups there because they have, all the universities have like, you know, incubators and accelerators. And um, so there's a lot of exciting things happening in that space. And I got to report on all kinds of new apps that were emerging and um, all kinds of companies, really. It sounds like you've come out on the right side with a purpose now, though. This is the way to be going. And someone like you is very important because you understand how it works, um, as we can see in this great series you've written, which is on your Substack page, RebeccaStrong.substack. .com and there are a range of uh, subscription options on there as well. Uh, Beck, thanks a lot for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. If uh, you're interested, it'd be great to get you back to talk about the other parts of this. Yeah, absolutely. I'd love that. Okay. Thanks a lot for coming on the show. We'll talk soon. Sounds great.